Welcome everybody this afternoon. Uh, we are very uh, happy to have here Stephen Oakley with us. Stephen is the uh, Kennedy Professor of Latin at the University of Cambridge. He is um, an expert on Livy, but also a scholar who, a classical scholar who looks at uh, incunabula as well as manuscripts. And that is why we asked him to um, give us a paper on uh, title was all he is, Incunabula Stematics. I've asked whether we are actually going to see a stemma. Probably not. Uh, but we might have even a chance of maybe draw a few lines together uh, at the end of, <laughs> of this talk. We'll see how it goes. Um, there is a handout here that I'll circulate. And there's going to be a PowerPoint. And towards the end of the paper, we are also going to have a look at the Incunabula selected by um, Stephen. And with this, we start. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Can I just say a word before I get going about the handout? Most of the Incunabula that I'm going to talk about are listed there. What I've done is I've basically copied and pasted off uh, larger typescripts on the individual authors. The exception is I shall also say a few words about Incunabula of Livy, and I didn't have anything convenient to copy and paste from. Uh, I don't think it will matter too much. Now, of course, despite my title, uh, I haven't got any stemata, and that is, I probably should have drawn some by hand. That's partly because I'm about to explain I'm not very technological, and I need to get better at drawing such things on a computer. And I don't think that's going to uh, matter most of the times. Most of the stemmata I'm going to talk about are direct lines. Can I just, before I get to the paper proper, can I just get you to focus on these lists of texts? I use Siglum. You'll find uh, I use the Siglum with a, normally with a small case letter, A, B, C, D, E. And when I talk about uh, so for instance, little e, or just e of Cato, I mean that 1499 edition. I'm not always going to say Reggio Emilia 1499. Indeed, I don't have that in my typescript, so I may sometimes... Anyway, so you will need that, and then the, I will refer to numbers from the page three onwards of the handout at various points as I go through. But again, I apologise for Livy not being on it. And the format is slightly different. For instance, um, Prussians, Periegesis, the Incunabula, I've already published what I have to say about that, and so it's in a slightly different format. Anyway, let's get going. Um, I'm going to start with a few words of introduction. Uh, over the last two decades or so, I've researched extensively into Latin textual traditions. Uh, first of all, on the first decade of Livy, and my views on that were published along 20 years ago, isn't it now? Amazing. And then on uh, several other authors since then, for which I've studied all or virtually all the manuscripts. And these authors are Ambrose's Treatise De Fide, Cato and Varro on Agriculture, uh, Cicero's Two Speeches, Pro Roscio Amarino and Pro Morena, Curtius Rufus's History of Alexander the Great, various works in the Corpus of St. Cyprian, the spoof contemporary history of the Trojan War that Septimius translated into Latin from an author who called himself Dictus of Crete, Pomponius Porfirio's commentary on Horace, 
Prussian's translation of Dionysius's Periegesis and Vitruvius's work on architecture. And I've also worked recently extensively on one family of the manuscripts of Pope Leo I's sermons. Now, if you ask me the question, why these authors, I will, it's just they, their manuscript traditions happened to interest me for various reasons. Why haven't I, I should have published, instead of piling them all up together, one after the other, one of the biggest regrets of the last two decades, but they are unpublished at the moment. The aim of these studies is genealogical, to trace the spread of the various strands of these textual traditions from the earliest manuscripts, or sometimes before them, from antiquity until about 1500. Incunables come at the end of the process and need to be investigated in case they contain evidence that has bypassed the extant manuscripts, and so that manuscripts copied from them may be placed in their right context. And besides, there is the desire genealogically to classify them simply because they exist, what some people call the Everest principle. You climb it simply because it's there. Um, some of the work on Prussian has been published in what is perhaps my most boring publication, number one on the handout, though there is some stiff competition from others. And as I said, the rest is unpublished. You're going to get the fruits of part of these researches today. Uh, you have noted that all the works whose traditions I've studied are ancient, with Cato being the second oldest Latin author to survive, and Leo coming at the very end of classical antiquity from the 450s. And this comes about because I'm a classicist, and in classics I work mostly on Latin, though I do also do some teach, uh, teaching and occasionally research on Greek authors. I've not studied medieval Latin properly or its literature, and I know, uh, nor do I know anything really about other books in other languages, early printed books, than Greek or Latin. I don't know much about Greek either. I know much more about manuscripts than printed editions, but it, in her invitation, Christina banned me from talking about <laughs> manuscripts. Uh, incunables are the only printed editions about which I know much, but I am not an incunabulist, as has become increasingly clear to me over lunch. I'm rather unmechanical, and so I'm not very clear on how a 15th century printing press worked. Um, I've got no real spatial awareness, as my family told me, so I find such concepts as printing in forms difficult to grasp. I can be extremely pedantic, um, as any investigator of a textual tradition has really got to be, but I've not yet been bitten by that peculiar kind of pedantry which consists in the inspection and comparison of letter types. And although the years I've studied the text of many incunables, I found when I began to write some generalisations for this paper that, again, there's a great deal of um, general bibliography, which I hope you'll direct me to, which I haven't looked at, and I clearly need to remedy before I publish. So I stand in awe of incunabulists. I hope some of you will give me some instruction with the books on hand afterwards. Uh, let me start with a Captatio Benevolentiae. Not everything in Oxford is superior to its equivalent in Cambridge, but in possession of manuscripts and incunables, there is no contest. Oxford's astonishing riches contrast with Cambridge's surprising poverty. And so it's always a pleasure to be here, particularly since you opened these new facilities two years or whenever it was or so ago. Most of what I plan to say this afternoon, which may take another 50 to 55 minutes, could be regarded as an answer to the question, from where did incunables draw their texts? Or as reflections on that time in practical and intellectual history when printed books were beginning to replace manuscripts written by hand. Uh, I recently became aware, 
uh, for the first time of Lotte, Lotte Hellinger's text in transit, and number two on your handout. And on page two, 444 and five, she writes, classical scholars seem to draw the line at transmission in manuscript. I, in my turn, feel compelled to draw the line at the printing house. Once the documents destined to serve as printer's copy are in, sorry, once the doctors, the documents destined to serve as printer's copy are inside. I hope that one day a student of the classical tradition in the 15th century will bridge the divide and identify how the manuscript tradition is reflected in the early printed editions of Cicero's orations. Well, the divide is less absolute than Hellinger imagined, even for Cicero's orations about which she was writing, as anyone who's read even a few of my friend and retired colleague Michael Reeves' articles will know. Um, but my work in general and my reflections uh, today may help to bridge it. The individual topics that I shall cover will include the number of independent incunables set up for an author, I mean textually independent, the placing of incunables within manuscript traditions of their authors, incunabular traditions of classical and patristic texts that start in Italy and others that start in Germany or elsewhere north of the Alps, surviving examples of manuscripts from which incunables were set up, the dates of the manuscripts used as exemplars for incunables, methods to be used in deriving one incunable from another, the merging of incunabular traditions after the editio princeps of an author, and the copying of, manus the copying of manuscripts from incunables, uh, with a little bit um, on textual annotations on incunables and its uses, and the extent to which incunables may, in any modern sense, be regarded as additions. Some of these topics are very closely related to others. Um, my discussion of them and my answer to the questions that they pose will be drawn from the textual traditions I've studied, as I say. Now, from Hellinger's book, I learnt that there were something like 28,500 separate incunabular editions printed. Obviously, the number of those that relate to Latin texts from antiquity is very much smaller, but even so, the 75, or if you add the Livy, about 90 incunables that I'm going to talk about today are a very small percentage of the total surviving. Nevertheless, I hope that it's not improper to give some generalizations based on this evidence. I start with discussion of how many incunables are textually independent of one another in these traditions. For Ambrose's De Fide, there is just one incunable, and so the question of independence does not arise. For Cato and Varro, and doubtless the other agricultural writers too who appear in the incunabular tradition with them, of whom there are five incunabular editions. Uh, St. Cyprian's works, of whom there are once more five incunabular editions. Vitruvius, of whom there are three incunabular editions. And perhaps, as we shall see surprisingly, Prussian's uh, poem on the earth, the Periegesis, for which there are 19 incunabular editions. All later incunables derive their texts ultimately, or directly, from the Editio Princeps. This is partly true also for Porfirio's commentary on Horace of which the Editio Princeps did not include the full text. The text that it had is to some extent repeated in the second and subsequent editions, but parts of the work were printed for the first time in the second edition. This second edition then became the ultimate source of all eight subsequent incunabular editions, which travel with the text of Horace. Not every edition of Horace has Porphyria or the commentary of Pseudo-Acre on it, but I think every, unless my memory has failed me, every uh, incunable of Porfirio comes with Horace. For Curtius Rufus, there were two independent editions, the Editio Princeps, produced by Vindelinus de Spira, and Lauer's undated Roman edition. 
although a few errors shared by the two have made me wonder sometimes whether the relative dating proposed by incunabulists is not wrong and whether Allower's edition is not the editio princeps and Vindelinus is not a highly contaminated and sophisticated production that has Allower's edition as part of its edition in its ancestry. The remaining four editions all derive from Vindelinus's. For Livy's first decade, not listed on your handout, 14 editions were produced before 1501, but only two are independent. The Editio Princeps was produced in Rome by Sveinheim and Panarts in 1469, but Campana's 1470 Roman edition for Ulrich Hahn is independent of it. For Leo's sermons, the Editio Princeps was produced in Rome, and inspection of several of the standard reference works on incunables may lead one to suspect that all others derive from it, not least because all but the edition ascribed to the Polish town of Chelmno have Bussi's, where Bussi was the editor of many of Sveinheim and Panarts' incunables preface. In fact, the Basel and Cologne editions, of which the years of publication and hence the priority are uncertain, take their text from an entirely different textual family. More on this later. The Chelmno edition derives in large part from the Editio Princeps, with, as I shall explain, some readings imported from, El from another identifiable source. But at its end, it prints a spurious sermon which comes entirely from this other source. I shall say more about this at the end of my paper. For Cicero's pro Moreno and pro Roscio Amarino, and indeed for most of his speeches, with the exceptions of the Verines and Philippics, which have a slightly different textual tradition, three of the twelve incunabular editions are independent and not derivative. The Editio Princeps of Sveinheim and Panarts of 1471, the first Venice edition of 1471, that's number B on my handout, and the Bologna edition of 1475, number D in my handout. Dictis Cretensis stands at the opposite extreme to Prussian's Peregetus. In Prussian, 19 incunabular editions, all dependent on the Editio Princeps. In Dictis, there are five incunabular editions, but the first four are independent of each other. Some generalisations emerge from this. First, in a significant number of textual traditions, all incunabular editions derive from the first. Second, in none of these traditions, apart from that of Dictis, do we find any very late incunables that are independent. Only in Leo is there a partly independent incunable that comes in the second half of the list, if you divide a list of sort of five, seven rather, into two parts. You get the fifth out of seven in Leo, partly independent. A reason for this may be that printers preferred, where possible, to set up books from other printed books, perhaps because this was easier, and perhaps because they regarded printed books as more reliable. The concept that amid its corruptions, an earlier witness, such as most manuscripts were earlier, might have valuable readings that needed to be considered, was little understood in the 15th century. A subsidiary reason may be that once the glory of producing the first printed book of a text had been lost, there was little reason to have recourse to a manuscript. As for the exceptions, well, the first Roman Venice editions of Cicero's speeches and the first two editions of Curtius Rufus could perhaps have been produced in ignorance of each other. The Editio Princeps of Dictis was produced at Cologne, and printers of the first Italian editions may have been ignorant of it. The textual traditions of incunables are best studied in the context of the textual traditions of manuscripts, because control of much or all of a manuscript tradition is needed to place an incunabular edition in it. All of the independent incunabular editions that I have mentioned, with one possible exception, may be placed with reasonable confidence in their genealogical context amongst the manuscripts. 
Several of these independent editions have texts very similar to manuscripts. The Editiones Principes of Ambrose's De Fide, of Cyprian, of Dictis and of Porfirio, the Bologna edition of Cicero's speeches, um, Laos' Roman edition of Curtius, the Mondovi and Milan editions of Dictis, and the third edition of Leo's sermons. Indeed, for the Editiones Principes of Cyprian, Porfirio, and probably of Dictis, we have more than similarity to manuscripts. Actual ancestors, I use the word ancestor deliberately, of these editions are still extant. An obvious generalisation springs from this. Many editions were set up straight from manuscripts and have in effect the same status as a manuscript. Others differ from their closest manuscript relatives in having a text that is slightly contaminated or that has been corrected from another source or slight, if the manuscript that is closest to them is already contaminated, the incunable has a text that's slightly more contaminated. For example, the first and second editions of Cicero's speeches. Uh, of the Ditio Princeps of Leo, of Livy's first decade, of Prussian's Periegesis, of Vitruvius, the second edition of Porfirio, and the fourth incunabular edition of Dictis. Nevertheless, despite the contamination, manuscript ancestors of some of the speeches of Cicero and the Editio Princeps, including the two that I've studied, of the Leo Editio Princeps, and of the second edition of Porfirio, can still be identified. That's the primary, if you like, the primary biological descent, if I may use that metaphor. Uh, the possible exception that I've mentioned is Vindelinus's Editio Princeps of Curtius. Uh, the textual streams that have gone into its ancestry can, I think, be identified, but it's not entirely clear to me, if you like, where the main base text has come from. All these editions, uh, the second half of these I've been talking about, which have had some contamination, raise a question to which I will turn. How extensive was the editorial activity that went into producing incunables? Although the destruction of manuscripts that have been used in printers' workshops is one of the more regrettable features of humanism, it is occasionally possible to be more precise and to point not just to a manuscript ancestor of an incunable, but to the very manuscript from which the incunable was printed. Here a question of method is involved. Because ancestors other than the immediate parent of an incunabular edition survive among medieval and Renaissance manuscripts, one needs to be sure that one is pointing not just to such an ancestor, but to the actual immediate source. Number four on your handout, words of Hellinger again. The identification of a document, manuscript or printed, as having served as printer's copy can only be based on the presence of compositor's marks alone. When in the absence of marks, textual features indicate a close relationship between a source and a printed edition, the possibility of a no longer extant intermediate copy deserves consideration. Conversely, and exceptionally, the presence of marks similar to compositor's marks cannot be taken as decisive evidence if textual features contradict it. An illustration of this danger is provided by the textual tradition of St. Cyprian. Uh, two manuscripts in the Bibliothèque Nationale of Paris, Latin 14460 and 1654, both of the 12th century, uh, are so close to each other that one der must derive from the other, though I'm not yet sure which. I'll say a bit more about this. Um, it's absolutely clear that Bussy's Editio Princeps must have one of them, or perhaps both of them, if you follow my logic, in its not-too-distant ancestry. If one, if one knew nothing of dating and geography, which will tell us that the manuscripts are French and have probably never left France and that the Editio Princeps was produced in Rome for Spineheim and Panart and is therefore Italian, one might be tempted to make one of these manuscripts the direct source of the Editio Princeps. 
But in his preface, Bussey says what you may find at five on your handout and what is my first picture, if you want the actual words, if you can see the screen. Um, Therefore, he says this, Bussy, therefore stirred up with a great deal of enthusiasm, I turned to a man of lofty spirit and eloquence, the godly Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, and I took his letters up in my hands with thoughts all the more competent for this reason. Once, as a student in the celebrated academies of Paris, where I had taken myself because of the fame of the city and my passion for study, and so that I might acquire a cultured outlook, I had transcribed these letters from quite an old exemplar with my own hands. I was expecting what in fact turned out to be the case. The expectation, I think, is as Bussy in the middle of sort of producing 50 Editio Princeps or whatever it was in two months. Um, I was expecting uh, what turned out to be the case. I should have less trouble with this manuscript and should acquire no less thanks in the eyes of Your Holiness, Paul II, and the thoughts of the most learned men. Here then is Bussy's manuscript does not survive, but it's absolutely clear Bussy was in Paris. He copied from one of those two manuscripts now of the 12th century, now in Paris, and the Editio Princeps clearly derives from that. In what I believe, to, but I'm not an incunabulist, to be the most recent survey of the subject, Hellinger listed 40 incunabular editions whose immediate source has been identified, and I know of one other which she missed, number six on your handout. Hellinger's list includes books published in the North European languages and in ancient Greek, as well as in Latin, uh, and medieval and Renaissance Latin, obviously, as well as classical. Some observations may be made about her list. First, some 20 of these 40 editions are of works produced in the 15th century itself. Second, sorry, works written in the 15th century itself. Second, for very uh, few editions of Latin texts from the ancient world, do manuscript exemplars survive? Number seven on your handout, you can find them. Augustine, Livy, Pliny's Natural History, Rufinus, and Augustine. To Hellinger's list, I can add only one other example. Investigating manuscripts used for the binding of books now in Darmstadt, Johannes Staub found in the binding of a copy of the 1531 Cologne edition of Pseudo Hymo's commentary on Isaiah, I hadn't heard of that text either, Fragments of a 12th century manuscript of Dictes and Darius Phrygius that are now in Darmstadter's manuscript 4216. He argued that they were the fragmentary remains from which the Editiones Principes of Dictes and Darius were produced. In the Dictis, there is no question that the Editio Princeps derives, I use the word advisedly, from these fragments. And I think it, he's probably right that it is the direct copy. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to reread the article because the Cambridge University Library doesn't have it. I hope to find it here later this afternoon. And uh, so I haven't been able to recheck his evidence for this paper. But one of the interesting things, and I don't have good illustrations of it, and uh, Darmstadt just sent me what are called reader copies, photocopies. But on those reader copies, you can find in the 12th century fragments, words were wrongly divided, and you can find marks pushing them together into the right places. I take it these are printer's corrections. I can't prove that. Of course, it could be a, just done in the, you know, for another scribe. I can't prove that there wasn't an intermediate manuscript. But nevertheless, the fact that the Editio Princeps of Dictis and, da and the separate one of Darius were produced in Cologne, the fact that this is bound in a book that um, was actually in Cologne, I think Staub was right. My third general observation of the 53 editions known to, uh, sorry, my third general observation of the 53 editions known to have been produced by Sveinheim and Panarts, I hope I counted correctly on ISTC, 
um, of which 11 were reprints of their earlier editions, exemplars have been identified for seven. Well, if you ignore the reprints, that is six identified for out of 42. That strikes me as quite a high percentage. Three of them I've just mentioned. The others are listed on number nine of your handout. Um, for Cardinal Vessarion, a translation of Strabo, Leo's sermons about which more later, and for Perotti. The only comparable cluster is uh, the last ones on Hellinger's list, number 36 to 40, part of the collection of Greek manuscripts that survived in Manutius's uh, printing house, whence they were rescued and ultimately ended up with Rananus in Alsace. To generalise about the geographical provenance of the textual traditions from which independent incunables of ancient Latin texts were set up is easy. Italy was the centre of intellectual life in general in the 15th century and dominant by the 1470s in the art of printing. And all the independent incunables that I have mentioned, except for the Editio Princeps of Dictis and the third edition of Leo's Sermons, both of which are German, and for the Editio Princeps of Ambrose's De Fide, they all belong to Italian traditions, even though in the case of Bussi Cyprian, the stream had only flowed into Italy relatively recently, as we've heard. To generalise about the date of the manuscripts used for the setting up of incunables of these Latin authors is much more difficult, since so few survive. However, all those listed above date from the 15th century, apart from uh, number 25, which is perhaps late 14th, and the fragments of Dictus and Dares, which are 12th century. And it's overwhelmingly likely that most incunables derive from manuscripts of recent date. Except for Ambrosius's De Fide and the Editio Princeps of Dictis, the independent incunables of all the authors whom I study find their closest textual relatives in 15th century manuscripts. Should an Editio Princeps or other independent incunable uh, be discovered to have a text close to, say, a 12th century or 9th century manuscript, without marks on the manuscript proving its use in a printer's house, one could not be certain that a now lost 15th century descendant was not used. Hitherto, I've discussed the relationship of independent incunables to their manuscript sources. It's time now to turn to incunables that derive from other incunables, uh, but before doing so, it would be necessary to say something about the stemmatic method which features in the title of my paper. Stemma is a word that the Romans took over from ancient Greek, and they used it most often in the sense of a family tree. The stemmatic method, number 10 on your handout, has been applied primarily to manuscript traditions, starting in the 1830s. Its essence is that a manuscript that repeats all the significant uncorrected errors of an earlier manuscript over a reasonably long stretch of text will derive from it. Several words or phrases in this sentence need some explication. First, repeats. Axiomatic to the stomatic method is that scribes make mistakes in copying. It's rare to collate for an hour and find that a scribe has made no mistakes. Rarer still, obviously, to collate for two hours. In study of what must now be getting on, well, hundreds of manuscripts over the last two decades or so, I've so far been defeated only by four. Um, two of them are the Cyprians I've just mentioned, where simply I can't find a mistake in one that is not in the other. And I shall win these battles. It will just take a long and boring time in doing it. The second observation is a reasonably long stretch of text. If you collate just a page or two of manuscript C and you find that it has all the errors of manuscript B and adds more of its own, 
Well, it may derive from manuscript B, but you've hardly enough evidence to rule out the possibility that manuscript B is an accurate copy of a lost manuscript A, and manuscript C is a less accurate copy. You're going to need more than just a page or two. If you're editing a text and your manuscript is one that you're using, you've obviously got to collate all of it. But if you're investigating a manuscript tradition, as I have been doing, no, one is going, no one's going to stop you from collating all the way through most of the manuscripts, but if you've got hundreds of them, it's almost certainly a waste of labour. Just as you don't need to surrender all your blood or tissue when you go for a biopsy, um, thank God, so a small percentage of a manuscript is usually sufficient to glean enough evidence to place it on a stemmer. And I've usually found that collation of about 10 pages of Oxford classical text or the like produces sufficient evidence. And when one suspects that a manuscript derives from another, one can always go and look for physical clues, um, various features which, if you like, deliver a knockout blow. My third uh, aspect of this sent word is significant that I want to talk about. Some errors are so trivial that they could have been easily corrected by a competent scribe. Examples of this include orthographic variation, which is rarely significant, a simple misspelling that puts a direct object of a verb not in the accusative but in another Latin case, or omission of the Latin word et, that means and if you're not a Latinist. And I have found that in patristic texts, mistakes in the quotation of scripture are sometimes easily corrected by scribes. The best errors are omissions, uh, the second best, transpositions. But there are many other mistakes that one might regard as significant. Fourthly, earlier I highlighted, I'm not sure that I needed to include this in my brief statement of method, since it's my belief that a manuscript that has all the errors of another and adds more of its own must derive from it and therefore have been written later. When I first started work on manuscripts in the mid-1990s, I was told by a Cambridge colleague who is a distinguished editor of medieval English texts that the stomatic method was still used only by a few old-fashioned fuddy-duddies in Oxford. What philologists call contamination, that is the cross-fertilisation of one textual stream with another, is the reason that many people are suspicious of the method. In investigations of classical and patristic texts, one quite often finds that before the date of our earliest extant manuscript, many members of different textual families have been cross-fertilised by correction from another family. In antiquity in the Middle Ages, everyone knew that mistakes could be made in copying and that manuscripts could be incomplete, and so checking and correction were common. I do not deny the existence of contamination. Indeed, I probably met much more of it than many of the scholars who glibly cite it as an insuperable difficulty. But one needs to ask for what purposes one is constructing a stemmer and deriving manuscripts. If one's main interest is in the transmission of a text, well, one's earlier manuscripts may have a polygenetic ancestry, having been subject to cross-fertilisation in earlier stages of a manuscript tradition, but this does not mean that a stemmer of descendants from these earliest manuscripts cannot be constructed. And contamination can be a great blessing in such a construction. If a manuscript has been heavily corrected and a later manuscript shadows it in such a way that it has all the significant uncorrected errors of the earlier manuscript and adds errors freshly introduced by the corrector, then at once we have even better proof than usual of derivation. It's in editing that contamination causes difficulty. I'll tell you why in question time if you want to ask me. I turn now to incunables. In theory, there is no reason why the tenets of stomatic should not apply in the classification of incunables. In practice, there are certain differences, of which I note four. 
First, whereas most manuscripts are undated, very many incunabular editions are dated, and if an edition is not dated, study of its typography will often lead to an approximate date. Uh, a very approximate, uh, sorry, what I, uh, an approximate date that is quite reliable, I should say. This makes one's work much easier. Second, the percentage of manuscripts that are lost, even among those written in the second half of the 15th century, is high. But unless I'm gravely mistaken, the percentage of incunabular editions of ancient Latin authors, of which all copies are lost, is small. For the authors that I have studied, I'm not aware of any evidence for the existence of other editions that have not survived. Uh, that may just be ignorance on my part, although it is conceivable that some, I suppose, have sunk completely without trace. Moreover, if no copy of an incunable survives, it is unlikely to have had a small print run and therefore to have been unimportant. A few years ago, it transpired that Göttingen University Library had an incunabular edition of Ovid, which is useful for editorial purposes in his Heroides, that was known nowhere else. Such discoveries are, I think, surprising. Thirdly, a significant percentage of incunables replicate their predecessors in, su uh, in such matters as quiring, pagination, and lineation. Such facts are a pointer to derivation. They are, of course, found from time to time in manuscripts, but very much more rarely, and precise replication of lineation as opposed to quiring in manuscripts is particularly rare. Fourth difference, most copyists worked quite briskly, since writing by hand allows briskness and hence were prone to making mistakes. But significant errors are found much less often in derivative incunables than in derivative manuscripts, since the process of selecting which letter types to use and of putting them on the press was slower, and many presses seem to have checked over, and many presses seem to have checked over pages in proof before they were finally printed. The commonest error in incunables is putting letters upside down, getting a U instead of an N, and things like that. In my experience, major omissions are very rare, and transpositions are very much less common than in manuscripts. Nevertheless, misprints do occur, usually with reasonable frequency. And although one would not wish to use many of the mistakes that arise from misprints in the classification of manuscripts, so though many of the mistakes in cunables would think too trivial for use of manuscripts, they can be put to good use in the classification of incunables. Again, I was pleased to find words of Hellinger last week. No less significant for tracing textual transmission are the variants introduced by accident during typesetting, either by misreading or as typographical errors. As an example of stomatics at work in a textual tradition, Let's look at the agricultural writings of Cato and Varro. And this is where I get very boring, if you don't think I am boring already. There are five incunables, which I term little a, b, c, d, and e. In the portions of Cato and Varro that I collate, I found that the later four all share the significant errors of the Aditio princeps and most of its insignificant errors too. The exceptions, for which see 12 on your handout, are a few errors avoided by the later ones, Trivi mostly trivial. They could have been corrected without recourse to another exemplar, and they don't, the avoidance of them does not constitute proof of contamination, let alone that the later incunables C, D and E do not derive from A, the Aditio princeps. All these errors, uh, later manuscripts, B, C, D, E, also share two errors in Cato that are not found in the Aditio princeps. They're minor, but it can't be a coincidence that they all show them. Um, they wouldn't count as significant in the study of manuscripts, but it, all this cannot be a coincidence. It creates a presumption that the second incunable derives from the first, 
and that the third, fourth, and fifth derive from the second. You may ask why I discount trivial errors that are avoided and make use of some that are freshly introduced when all are errors that could have been corrected by an alert editor or a printer who knew Latin. The answer is that the triviality of the errors means that their avoidance is insignificant, but in my view, the very fact that C, D, and E follow B in introducing such mistakes can hardly be coincidental, certainly not when you've got more than one of them. As for B's derivation from A, the editio princeps, it's guaranteed also by B's following A, even in matters of lineation. Well, to pursue the chain further, number 13 on the handout, C, D, and E share all the significant errors of B and add those I hope I've listed on the handout of their own, again minor. Um, and one can add also two conjectures made by Beroaldos, the humanist who oversaw the production of C. And so it follows that C, D, and E must derive from the same source, and obviously that source must be C. In the portion that I've collated, D and E share all the errors of C and add some of their own, I hope again listed on the handout. And they also have a true, an innovation which happens to be true. They must have a common origin, and the common origin must be D, from which E, the last incunabular addition, derives. All this is not terribly exciting and could probably have been guessed. Um, but because the incunabular tradition of the agricultural writers is small, it is easy to use it for illustration, and I hope I've shown how a flexible use of stomatics and attention to shared minor errors can be of use even when there are no significant errors introduced by the later incunables in the portions I collated. Of course, it helps greatly that the relative dates of the additions are known. Um, we found that in the agricultural writers, all five incunabular additions form a chain, um, and you've got a, a E going from D, from C, from B, from A. And I want to just say briefly a bit about some other uh, texts where you get these chains. You get it in Vitruvius, A, B, C in a chain, and Cyprian the chain is slightly different. Um, a from A derives B, but C, D, and E all derive from B separately. It's worth noting that A, B, and D are the only Italian productions. C was produced at Deventer and E in Stuttgart. Together, the Italian editions form a successive chain. Now, for Porfirio's commentary on Horace, I'm going to dilate longer. We've got 10 incunabular editions, all Italian. Uh, B, which probably derives in part from A, as I've said, was the first to offer a complete text. From it derives C, from C derives D, from D derives E, from E derives F, from F derives G, from G derive all of H, I and J. And from A to H, or to I or to J if you like, gives us a chain of eight incunables. That all H, I and J derive from G is quite certain, not least because H, I, J repeat G's mistake of having two page 257s. Now let's see if my illustrations work. I think we start with incunable F, page 250, folio 257, which goes then, I'm not giving you the versos, on the next recto it says 258 and no second 257. We now move on to G and you've got 257 first time. Look at the first, you'll see the text pagination is identical and there you've got a second but it's a little different bit of Latin text. Go to H, um, and you've got the first, and there's the second, same Latin text illustrated, same lineation, and I, there we are, less good picture, 
Uh, that's the end of the finis. It's the last page of the text. If you look at the bottom there, Laos Deo, which we'll all be saying in half an hour's time. Um, so there we are, two page, two, an, an identical text. They all must derive from G. Um, well, how do they derive from G? Uh, I'm going to skip a bit of my typescript. In the British Museum catalogue of incunables, they, it is argued that though the colophon of edition J, the last in my, in my list, is dated later than that of edition I, it, the, the relative order should perhaps be reversed of these editions, and that I should derive from J. Now, I don't believe this, because if you look, you will find that G, H, and I all end with the words Gratidia Neapolitana Fuit on folio 149 recto, which I just <coughs> use exemplary gratia. There's G, there's I, I don't think I bothered with H, but you've got there, you look at, here is J, those words are on the penultimate line at the bottom. Mm -hmm. It seems to me incredible that I could replicate the lineation of G if it actually derived from J. Well, that doesn't seem to me, but you may be, those who know about printing may be able to correct me. Um, I'm going to go on to Prussian's periegesis, on which I've published, um, but I, I hope you'll excuse me repeating some of what I've said in print in this generalising context. There are 19 of them. Incunables, all derive ultimately from the Ditio Princeps. Most include other works of Prussian too, but Incunables H, L, O, P, Q, and R, that is six of the 19, contain only the periegesis. I found that 10 of these incunables made a chain, and I'm going to use biblical language A begat C, which begat E, which begat F, which begat G, which begat I, which begat J, which begat M, which begat N, and which begat S. What about the others? Well, B like C derives from A. D like E derives from C. H, which has only the periegesis from Prussian, which it couples with Pomponius Mela's geographical work, derives from G. And L, which likewise has only the periegesis, may derive from H. O, which has only the periegesis, derives from J. P, which has only the periegesis, derives from E, R derives from F, and Q from I. In my chain of ten, all the additions are Italian. Those incunables that do not form part of the chain fall, in my view, into three categories. The first consists of three Italian editions of all Prussian, namely B, D, and K. I cannot explain why C derives from A and not B, but E's derivation from C and not from any of A, B, or D can be explained by its having been produced in the same city as C. The second category comprises Italian editions that include only the periegesis and not the grammatical works, uh, namely H, L and O. It may be significant that L, Italian, derives from the Italian H. The third comprises the fourth, the four North European editions, L, P, Q and R, and they all include only the periegesis. Again, it may be significant there is no North European chain. Now, we get something more interesting. One of the corruptions in the later incunables provides a helpful illustration of method. In verse 
um, 81 Prussian wrote the words qua domini, Q-U-A and then domini. And G has a misprint. Uh, it doesn't do qua domini, it does quado mini. It's got the word split wrong. Now, as we go on, we will find that this leads to progressive corruption. I, J, K, M, N, Q and S all have quando mini. Mm -hmm. There you are. There's, do you see? Quado has been turned into the Latin word quando. So there you have... Uh, that in itself is decided. Incidentally, I didn't bother to produce a picture of F to show, which is G source, to show there is no misprint at all. It starts in G. And there's another one, there's J, and then we get on to something different. So the error in itself is not significant. It could be corrected. Incunable H does correct it. You don't need to be a brilliant textual critic, a Bentley or a Pawson, to go and make the correction. Nevertheless, the very fact that the compositors failed to make this correction and indeed progressively corrupted it in the first time round is significant. And my study of the incunables of Cicero's pro Roscio Amarino and pro Morena led to slightly different results, and I've got some other chains I'm skipping as time is marching. I said that there are three independent editions of these, the Roman Editio Princeps, the second edition from Venice, and the fourth edition from Bologna. That's my A, B, and D. The Bologna edition, D is a stomatic dead end, but the first two editions were productive. The story that I tell in my unpublished chapter on these speeches um, at the moment goes like this. Um, that incunable E is a copy of incunable A, and that both G and J are independent copies of E. I'm sorry not to produce a stemmer of this. As for the other editions, C derives from B and F from C, and so on um, through H, I, K, and L. But I also say there was some cross-fertilisation. You've got, if you like, the Rome chain from A, the Venice chain from B, but there was some cross-fertilisation that went from E into the other chain and affected F, H, I, K, and L. This story could still be right. But again, reading Hellinger's books, you can see I've, um, it would have done me, well, it wasn't published when I wrote this chapter, uh, but the original article was. Uh, she agrees that F derives from C, I find, in her chapter on these incunables, but she tackled the matter from a different perspective. The third Venetian edition included bits that were of speeches, like the Procluentio, that were missing from earlier Venice in Cumans. They were there in the Rome, but the textual tradition of Cicero's speeches in Italy included uh, some branches in which some bits of speeches were missing. The third Venetian edition includes them all. Hellinger argues that it comes from a manuscript. Now, I've just said that actually I think it's incunable E that cross-fertilizes the later Venetian tradition. Uh, she thinks, it, I need to check that. If I find um, that in, uh, the readings are compatible with incunable E, then I've won, if you like, a minor victory. I like the idea of incunabular traditions merging. Uh, this seems to, I haven't, curiously, in these authors I haven't met it, but in reading elsewhere I have. I'm less happy with the idea of manuscripts coming in, simply because I don't meet it very often. But I may need to admit defeat and bow to Hellinger's judgment.
Uh, some generalizations can be made about the material I've analyzed. Uh, Ted Kenny remarked in the classical text, uh, number 18 on your handout, that as a result of the introduction of printing, the process of transmission had become, at a stroke, unilinear or monogenous. With remarkably few exceptions, the descent of any given text through the printed editions is in a single line. And I think my investigations have, in general, confirmed that. Uh, there are exceptions in the traditions of Cicero, Livy, that I didn't mention, and Prussian's periegesis, but they don't affect the generalisation. There are still big lines, even in these traditions. Hellinger's study of the massive incunabular tradition of uh, Poggio's Facetiae, a very popular Renaissance text, though, again provides a few exceptions, but again illustrates this fundamental rule. Uh, can we explain it? Well, perhaps a general um, belief in progress explains it, that newer editions offer the superior text to older. Uh, and if this was a general belief, it may contain an element of truth. Uh, when incunabular traditions are bypassed by later editions, as in the traditions of Cicero's speeches and sometimes in Prussian's periegesis, it may be because printers preferred to use editions produced in their own city perhaps for reasons of local pride, perhaps more mundanely because of ease of access. A third generalisation is that all the North European incunables that we have met in the traditions of Cyprian and Prussian's periegesis derive from earlier Italian incunables. I found no instance of a North European edition influencing the Italian incunabular tradition. I, include, I conclude that North European incunabular editions were rare in Italy. By contrast, it's quite common to find evidence for the penetration of in Italian incunables into Northern Europe. Um, and there are various examples. I'd, I'd just give you one example. Uh, the only manuscript of Dictus to be copied from a printed edition is now in Leipzig and is German. It is copied from a printed edition produced in Milan in 1477. Manuscript exemplars of incunables may be rare, but rarer still are printed exemplars of incunables. This really is the Holy Grail. Only numbers 1, 6, 8 and 34 on Hellinger's list are instances of these. Of these, number 8, a copy of the Editio Princeps of Leo's sermons that Bussi oversaw for Philippus de Lignamine, if I got that right, um, that was corrected by Bussi himself for his Editio Secunda, which was with Sveinheim and Panart. It now, it now survives in Florence's Marucelliana Library. Uh, I went to look at it last week in Florence. I needed to do other work in Italy, and it's by far the most interesting copy of an incunable that I've ever seen. On it, we can see corrections made by Bussi, included, uh, and marks for the ending of new pages, which correspond either precisely or to within a word, but generally precisely, to those in the Sveinheim and Panarts edition. And the beauty of this Florentine copy for me is that it makes manifest the small-scale correction between successive incunabular editions that in almost all other textual traditions one can only postulate and hypothesise, and which I have just been postulating to you this afternoon. Uh, the phenomenon of the manuscript deriving from a printed book is well known to specialists in textual traditions, but it still causes some surprise amongst people who are not specialists. Uh, I'll say a bit about it. From the textual traditions that I have studied, I found that out of about 210 manuscripts that contain or started out as though they were going to contain, contain Libby's first decade, six derived from printed editions. Cato and Varro, three out of 47. Um, 
and perhaps Cicero's Pro Roscio, Amarino and Pro Morena, two out of 140. Curtius, Rufus, um, about two out of 140. Dictus, one out of 71. For Porfirio, um, uh, one out of about 24. Vitruvius, none, though there are some excerpts, out of 75. And for the corpus of Cyprian, I've looked at about 150. Now, it varies from text to sex, but three derive from printed editions. Um, and for Leo's sermons, um, I've looked, uh, the family I'm interested in has about 57 manuscripts. There are three that derive from printed editions. Um, rather different is Prussian's Periegesis. Out of some 40 manuscripts, 11 derive from printed editions. Uh, Bueller wrote in the 15th century book, experience has taught me that every manuscript ascribed to the second half of the 15th century is potentially, and often without question, a copy of some incunable. Now my figures, apart from the Prussian, show this as an exaggeration. For all the manuscript traditions that I've investigated, most of which are dominated by productions of the 15th century, and in the 15th century, really the period 1450 to 1470 is again dominant in manuscripts, um, it's usually under 10%, 5% of the total number of manuscripts that derive from incunables. Well, the high percentage in Prussian is, I think, because the text arrived late in Italy, uh, probably only around 1450. Printing came soon after. If you were a scholar who wanted a copy, the easy and incunables were mass-produced, the easiest place to find a text was probably in an incunable. Manuscripts copied from printed editions tend to take two forms. Some are rather unprepossessing, often being written on paper, and such manuscripts were probably made by scholars or students. Others are extremely luxurious and were designed for patrons who perhaps regarded printed books as vulgar. And the Aragon Library of Naples and the uh, Library of Urbino are two good examples of luxurious productions. Uh, what you've got here is a manuscript of Quintus Curtius, which was, I think, with the arms of uh, Federico da Montefeltri, Duke of Urbino, added later. It's in the Urbino Library, it's Florentine, it, uh, no question about that. I think it went as the first Curtius for that library second-hand. It was replaced by this grand production, which was produced, I would think, in Urbino itself, or uh, thereabouts. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this, uh, this later manuscript starts off deriving from the first additional proof that it was produced in Urbino, since that is not Florentine decoration, but then it switches to the Editio Princeps. Now, one of the interesting things that one could say is that the famous Florentine bookseller Vespasiano da Vestici um, said that the Federico, the Duke of Urbino, de despised printed books. What's quite interesting is that we can now show that actually quite a lot he had printed books, and here we've got absolute evidence that in his library was a printed book that was being used. Occasionally, proof that a manuscript derives from a printed book can come as an unwelcome surprise. There are various editors who've been ambushed by later scholars and reviewers who've pointed out that the manuscripts they've used have been copied from printed books. Uh, editors of Livy's first decade have used Uppsala Universität Bibliothek C908, which mostly dates to the 10th century, but it's got some bits that are patched up in Book 1 and in Book 10. Uh, it's been assumed that these, these are a Gothic script of the 14th century. I was able to show that they derive 
not from the Editio Princeps, but from the reprint of it in 1472. Um, well, you also sometimes find some manuscripts that must derive from incunables that are contaminated. That is, they don't have all the readings. They have, if you like, all the readings that would place it with incunable C, except a few. And the answer to that is they derive from incunables which had had ma corrections from elsewhere, usually manuscripts, plastered over them. I've not actually found such an incunable that is a source. Because that would be an even rarer holy grail to find. That would, would be the ultimate find. Uh, reference to corrections on printed editions brings me to another topic. Um, and that is, and I've picked up that it's axiomatic amongst printed editions that each one is different and needs to be studied separately. I think it's quite clear to me that actually, for my kind of work, that is rarely the case. In general, most incunables will do. The exceptions are if you can actually point to an incunable that must have been used for a manuscript to be copied from it, or as uh, this Florentine incunable, which was the actual source of a later edition. I'm going to skip what I say about editing, and because I want to get on to the final, I'm going to go on for five more minutes. I'm going to say basically, I think quite a lot of care went into the Editio Principes, were carefully because often show signs of correction beyond their nearest manuscript sources. Uh, not much thought went into the text of derivative incunables, in my experience. I want to say a bit about Leo's sermons in the last five minutes. Um, to cut a sto long story short, Leo's sermons, of which there are about 95, um, were collected in the early Middle Ages. They appear in various sources, including sermon collections, but there was a big collection made, which Chavast, the most recent editor, number 24 in your handout, calls A, B, and C, though he admits C is really part of B. Uh, I've been, for reasons which I won't bore you with, I got interested in the manuscripts. Uh, Bussy produced the... Aditio Princeps for Philippus de Lignamine sometime before the 21st September 1470, which is the date plastered in hand on the Florentine copy of that. It's the earliest book ascribed to Philippus de Lignamine, how Bussy managed to work for him whilst engaged in the remarkable series of editions for Spineheim and Panart, I have no idea, and perhaps deserves a further investigation. Um, Chavas showed some of the, the some of the care which Bussy had produced into what he thought was the uh, what Chavas thought was the Editio Princeps. In fact, the second edition. I've already told you that the copy in the Maruchelliana of this book served as the exemplar for Spineheim and Panartz's edition produced in Rome in uh, after September the 21st, 1470. We have a chain. We have the sixth and seventh. Incunables derived from the second. So you go one, two, six, seven in a chain, all Italian. We have some manuscripts derived from incunables. Um, but I want now to focus on the third, fourth, and fifth editions. If you read ISTC or the Gesamtkatalog der Wiegendrucker, you'll get hardly a hint that any of the five incunabular editions are different in substance from the first. All except the fifth are marked as Leo's sermons edited by Bussy. The fifth is just marked as Leo's sermons. And so this allows me to pay a gracious compliment to you as my hosts. In the catalogue of Bodleian incunables, the contents of each are described. 
I start with the fifth. It was produced by a printing house whose location had long baffled incunabulists because the typeface seemed Dutch, but the incunables were massively distributed in Poland. When I collated it a few weeks ago, it was immediately apparent that the text was fundamentally that of the first two Roman editions, but that the contamination had removed some of their readings. Now, over Christmas, I've been interested in two Silesian manuscripts of Leo. Uh, Silesian is a very good word to use of towns like Breslau, Rotslav, when you don't want to cause ethnic offence. Uh, the first is now in Krakow. It was owned by Nicholas Merbot, who has been described as Silesia's greatest book collector. And it's a text very like the main Florentine family of Leo's sermons. Merbot had been a representative of what was then Breslau in Florence and had studied in Siena. The second is now in Rotslaf, into which Breslau has metamorphosed, and derives from the Krakow manuscript. Now, a plausible but wrong reading in the opening sentence of the first sermon in the Chelmno incunable reproduces an error distinctive of just these two manuscripts of Leo and no others. Therefore, could the correction and contamination have come from one of these manuscripts? It would be a beautiful argument, text and geography perfectly married. But one reading is a weak base for an argument, and getting more would be difficult because the correction of the Editio Princeps had not been very extensive. Then the Oxford description gave me an idea. It told me that not only does this edition cut out Bussey's preface in some extraneous matter, which is entirely sensible, but also adds a spurious sermon about David's son Absalom, which can be found in volume 56 of Means Patrologia. This is found in no other incunable, but it is found in the Florentine family of manuscripts from which the Silesian manuscripts derive. For this part of the text, I've only got a reproduction of one of these manuscripts, but the Polish incunable has its distinctive readings. There's no doubt that this sermon on Absalom was set up either from Meerbot's manuscript or a copy of it. So we've got a nice story, part of the awakening of humanism in Silesia. Manuscripts now in Krakow and Rotslav sharing readings with my Florentine family can be explained by Nicholas Merbos, Sojourn in Italy. He took the text back to Silesia where at least one other manuscript was produced. And then either Merbos's manuscript or a copy was used by the Polish printers who already had a copy of the Editio Princeps. So my pedantry rings further confirmation that this edition was printed in what is now Poland, and it may also have identified the Editio Princeps of the Sermon on Absalom, but I don't quite know how you go about looking for Editio Princeps of Sermons on Absalom. Now, last thing I'm going to say is the third and fourth editions were produced north of the Alps, the fourth being placed in Basel and dated to either 1474 or 1475, the fifth being placed in Cologne and dated to 1475. They have Bussy's preface, but when I inspected their text, I found at once that they derived not from the B and C group, which I was interested in, but from the A group of manuscripts, which I had barely investigated. I have not come across any statement of this anywhere in print, although the description in the Oxford catalogue, again, reveals the contents, and looking at that, though it doesn't say it, you can see that it has the contents of group A, whereas the others have group B. Not a word of any of this in ISTC or the Gazamt catalogue. The two editions are virtually identical, but I, so I assumed that the fourth derives from the third. But collation revealed some oddities. The third has all the errors of the fourth and adds more of its own. I then realised that for neither edition is the dating absolutely secure. It's just based on letter type. And so is there a chance for the textual pedant to help the incunabulist by reversing the dating? 
Now, I'm cautious at the moment for three reasons. The impunables are here, by the way. First, the errors not in the fourth edition could perhaps have been corrected by the printer. I think I think, think that's likely, but I'm not absolutely certain. Second, one needs an anchor for stomatics. In this case, a manuscript like these editions. I had not previously planned to investigate the A manuscript, so I don't yet have an anchor. Clearly, I'm going to have to now. And for some sermons, Chavas cites a manuscript in Munich that does have a very similar text. I mean, Chavas only cites it occasionally. But it dates from after these editions. And since Chavas did not know these editions were completely different from the Editio Princeps, uh, he, he cannot have even thought about the possibility that this Munich manuscript was actually copied from one of the editions. So that's not going to serve me as an anchor. Now, the quite, my last, very last comment is, and I'm going to stop, here's the Basel edition, uh, said to be the earlier, and look that it looks, it ends with what, de spiciatur, if I can read correctly. Here's the same word ending the Cologne edition. Now, I've only seen, I haven't seen hard copies of these books, but they clearly, ending a page, is that the, I need to check, which I might be able to do in a minute, whether this is the end of a, choir or a gathering, whatever you call it in Inkilum, and whether one is based on the acquiring of the other. Well, the books can be on the table, the editions of Leo, and some of you may be able to help me with that. I'm sorry to talk for slightly longer than I planned. Thank you very much.